HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hello, welcome to Cooking Issues Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues, here with Nastasha Lopez, Cooking Issues Hammer. And we are coming live to you every Tuesday from 12 to 12.45. Call in with all of your cooking-related questions. Uh, we, our speciality is technical questions, but we will take any questions. Uh, call in live to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. And today's show is brought to you by the Whole Foods Market and the Craft Beer Festival, which is coming up uh, starting, I guess, Friday, right? It's, it's a whole week of craft beer stuff. Uh, and to kick off the annual series, the Whole Foods Market Bowery is hosting a beer and food pairing event at their beer room. Uh, Oscar Blues is on tap, and Chef Jacques Gauthier of Park Slope's pa- uh, Palo Santo is cooking up one of his South American delights to accompany. The food tasting goes from 5 to 7, and the beer will continue till 9. With Craft uh, Beer Week passports, get $3 off a 64-ounce growler fill. That's quite a lot of beer. And meet Chef Gauthier on Friday, September 24th, and enjoy some special tastes on tap from the kitchen. Uh, by the way, uh, that's right by my house, actually, the... Uh the Whole Foods Bowery is right by my house where I live in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And uh, I was happy to see that very recently they have actually a, a homebrew section there. And I think it's the only place that I know of in Manhattan where you can walk in and buy malt and yeast and uh, all the stuff for homebrewing. So cheers to you, Whole Foods, for making homebrew accessible to uh, us Manhattanites. Um, I haven't brewed beer since I was uh, since since right before my second son was born, and then my wife was like, "Hey, you know what? It's already a mess in the damn house. You got two kids, no more beer brewing." Because of course, when I brew beer, like I can't just be like a normal human being and use extracts. Like I, you know, I have full you know full malt. You know, I ground it all in my house. It's, you know, it's a it's a freaking mess. They're delicious, but a freaking mess. Anyway. Call in your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. So, Nastasha, it's been a busy uh, week, right, for the yeah. Cooking Issues crew, uh, which is why you haven't seen much on the blog recently because we've been uh, super busy. We're in the middle of Star Chefs Week, which uh, you know is a, a yearly uh, convention uh, of uh, chefs, I guess. What do you think? Star Chefs? Yes. Anyway, at the Armory uh, on the east side of Manhattan. And uh, you know a lot of the... Uh, Glitterati of the food world show up for three days and hang out, and we we did a cocktail event yesterday, which was good. We have another cocktail event this afternoon, and another one tomorrow. Another one tomorrow, and then coming up on Saturday, and there's I think believe only twenty tickets left. We are doing a cocktail for the Heritage Radio Network's uh, yearly fundraising barbecue, the Heritage Radio Party here at Roberta's Pizza in Brooklyn. And if you want to get one of those last remaining tickets, they're a hundred dollars a pop. You can email info at heritageradionetwork.com. That's info at heritageradionetwork.com. Com. Okay, now uh, let's uh, look for some questions. We have some email questions while we're waiting to see if we get any callers. Don Rollins writes in, and he said he just uh, now listened to uh, one of our previous shows, and there was a question we answered about vodka in sauces. And he says that Alton Brown mentioned, I suppose, on the uh, on the what's it, what's his show? Good Eats, right? Yeah. Good, on his Good Eats show, uh, that tomatoes contain several compounds that are soluble in alcohol, but not in water or oil. And that adding alcohol to a tomato sauce brings out more of its essential tomatoness based on that fact. Well. Uh, Don, I uh, did some research early this morning, uh, and there are many, many references on the internet to 
that being the case, to there being an alcohol, like a certain uh, principles in the tomato that are more soluble in alcohol. Uh, but I was not able to find any specific technical reference that uh, bore that out. Now, it is true that uh, alcohol is going to change the release, uh, like alcohol in in uh, in your in your product is going to change the release of volatiles from it, and therefore uh, change the. Uh, you know, the flavor impact of the sauce. And I was able to find several technical references to that. There's also some mention on some sites um, of alcohol actually reacting with uh, the tomato, uh, you know, with, with the actual tomato to, to produce flavorful components that were not there before. So th- those are, you know, some possible things, but I don't have any ironclad evidence that I, I could find, you know, a scientific paper that said, hey, look, here's what's going on. I do, though, have a text into Harold McGee. So if he gets back to me on, uh, on the question of uh, tomato sauce and vodka and whether there's anything uh, more complicated going on, I will relay it to you next week. Um, okay. Uh, Jake Andrews writes in to uh, Nastasha and says uh, he wants to know whether anyone uh, – my iPad just died. No. He wants to know uh, – he got taken on eBay with an older polyscience polytemp circulator that is missing the thermometer to control the bath. Is there anything he can do or is he shafted? Well, uh, I really – you know, I sympathize with you. I had my first kind of uh, eBay shellacking recently where I bought a piece of equipment, a refractometer actually, an automatic refractometer. The thing is – would be crazy awesome because it measures basically uh, – there were any, any – you know, the refractive index of almost anything. It'll do bricks zero up to, you know, in the 90s automatically. Uh, you know, automatic temperature compensation. I could put a, f- a flow-through device on it so that I can measure things as I'm producing them, so I can measure alcohol content as, as I'm distilling. It has user-uploadable software profiles where I can upload. Anyway, it should be like a $5,000 piece of equipment. I bought it for $100 on eBay, and it said it was working, but guess what? It wasn't. And the company... Uh, I'm not going to mention Reichert by name, but they w- were not at all helpful to me. Uh, you know, they wouldn't even help me troubleshoot. I think there's a problem with the EEPROM, which is the chip that, you know, loads the software into it because hardware-wise it seemed okay. But they wouldn't even, like, open their mouths to tell me, like, what to look at, so uh, shellacked. Now, you're lucky in the one sense that polyscience is not like this. I did a quick search on polytemp. I don't have the actual model. Oh, and for those of you that don't know what the hell we're talking about, immersion circulators are a piece of equipment that are becoming more and more common in kitchens today uh, that very, very accurately control the temperature of liquid. They used to be lab equipment, but now they're basically used in kitchens for low-temperature cooking. And Philip Preston from PolyScience just released the first kitchen model uh, you know, a couple of months ago that's specifically designed for kitchen. It's not just a piece of lab equipment. It's a piece of kitchen equipment. Anyway, they're great. I use it, I use it every day. It's the party machine. It's the brunch machine. Like If you ever have a party or throw a brunch, uh, this kind of equipment, you know, you should look into it. Anyway, you can see it on our website or go to polyscience.com. Anywho, uh, Philip is not a huge fan of you going out and buying used equipment because he wants to sell new equipment and also uh, because he says he doesn't know what happened to the equipment back in the day. The other problem is I've, I've worked on many of these eBay things that, you know, in, in the past eight years, I've maybe had um, or 10 years, I've had, uh, I don't know. 10, 12 ones off of eBay, uh, and a lot of the older models break because they've been used in laboratories for a long, long time. The bearings tend to go bad on them. Uh, you tend to have corrosion on the internal contacts, which leads to resistance and overheating on the internal parts. Um, so there are issues with the older ones. I'm assuming if it's older, it's analog. The good news is if you can get it to work, the analog ones are fairly accurate once you set them. You just need to get uh, a separate thermocouple to monitor digitally what's going on. Now, the problem is is that you don't have a temperature probe on it. Now, I did some research, and it appears that some of the older polyscience circulators have uh, what's called uh, a thermocouple, basically, uh, which is easy to source. The newer ones all use uh, platinum RTDs, which also are not difficult to source or to wire. So what I would do is contact uh, – either give me the model number or, or contact PolyScience directly and ask them what type of uh, what type of probe that unit has. And any one of those probes is very easy to source via eBay or McMaster Car. Not that you want to necessarily source on eBay again after you got shafted. But uh, <clears throat> anyway, they're fairly easy to source. So you just need to find out exactly what it is that you need to get uh, and then make a determination as to whether or not it's worthwhile. First of all, you should fire it up, make sure the motor's still working, you know, make sure the electronics still come on. Uh, anyway, <clears throat> I, hope, I hope this helps. Um, okay, uh, uh, one of our people from our sous vide class last week, which is the reason why we you know, couldn't be here live last week, Matt uh, wrote in and he said um, – 
he he has actually has a restaurant uptown in my old neighborhood, uh, up uh, 109th or 10th, 108th called Sip. And uh, check it out if you're up there. I haven't made it made it up there yet, but I intend to. Um, so he's wondering whether we ever tried to carbonate li- uh, liquor. Everyone who knows me personally knows that I carbonate nothing but liquor, basically liquor and, and water. I don't. I don't. I like everything with bu- most everything. I like with bubbles in it, right, Nastasha? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, bubbles, burbujas. <laughs> anyway, I like bubbles a lot. So his question is, have we ever tried to carbonate in an old-fashioned uh, soda water container uh, because he wants to put it behind his bar because he thinks it's, you know, because they do look cool. It's not because he thinks they look cool. They do look cool. Uh, and he's actually going to make a, uh, he's going to make a, an infused liquor um, based on like a pepper and tomato and he wants to carbonate it. Now, uh, whether or not it's feasible to use these old bottles depends on what you mean by old bottles. So, so roughly you can divide into two different categories. One is the kind that take chargers on them, like N- N2, uh, sorry, CO2 chargers. And these are kind of the, the older variety home units um, that glass with a metal cage around. Uh, you know, EC made them, aka ISI, or whatever you want to call them. Uh, a number of other manufacturers used to be made a lot in Czechoslovakia, very thick glasses. And these ones can be used to uh, carbonate. The problem with them is, is that they're, it's very hard to get a very good level of carbonation. First of all, liquor is going to require uh, more CO2 than water, and it's hard to get the headspace out uh, of the top of the uh, of the unit. So what I recommend is if you're going to use one of those with two charge, you have to use two chargers. And what you do is make sure your liquor is super super cold, right? Super cold. If you have a vacuum machine, deaerate it first to get rid of some of the air. If you don't, don't worry about it because you're going to go to the second step. You're going to put your liquor in. Make sure you always fill it to the exact same level every time. This way you know your recipe is going to work. Changing the level of liquid in the bottle is going to change the amount of carbonation you have each time. Okay, So make sure it's just the same every time. Make sure the temperature of the liquid is the same every time and as cold as possible. Then uh, <clears throat> put a CO2 car- uh, cartridge in. Swirl it to get it all dissolved. And then vent it so that it foams up and so you lose uh, – f- sorry, apologize. Turn it upside down so that the, the actual uh, siphons – these old seltzer siphons have a, a, a rod which goes down to the bottom so that when you press it, the pressure forces the liquid up through the rod and out the nozzle, right? When you're venting, you have to turn the seltzer siphon upside down so that you're venting the gas and not the product out. Otherwise, you're going to be in for a terrible mess. Anyway, so turn the thing upside down. Vent out the gas. That's going to get rid of the air. Uh, it's still trapped on the inside, uh, and it's also going to get rid of a lot of what's called the nucleation sites, which cause excess bubbling, right? So that's the key step, turning it upside down and venting it. Then turn it right side up, put another charger into it, shake it, and chill it, and you should have a good product. Now, if you mean by old seltzer bottles, the kind that the seltzer man delivers on a truck, or woman, I guess, but typically they were seltzer men, <laughs> delivers, a, a, on a, uh, delivers on a truck, like Three Stooges style, and you have a little lever, and you squeeze them, and you spray your buddy in the face, or put out a fire or whatever uh no that one is much more difficult to fill they they don't take a charger and they don't unscrew those are actually the the tops are left on them and they are washed and filled uh by a machine by actually you squeeze the the nozzle like you squeeze the lever like you were going to uh, spray seltzer out of it and then a machine squeezes the nozzle and fills it without taking the top off so i've considered for several years actually building something to do that but i haven't done it and it's not a trivial process so until and i didn't see anyone on the internet until someone works out like a super slick uh, do-it-yourself way of refilling those old, old seltzer bottles, I would not try to get one of those. Although it's always been a project that I've been interested in. It's just, just too, I too many projects and too little time. That's true. Right? I saw a lot at flea markets, and I was going to get you one. Maybe yeah, well, also, if you're going to do it, uh, get one with a metal mesh around it because, you know, if someone nicks one of those old glasses and you're inflating it up to 60 PSI or so, I mean, th- those were built for 120 PSI, but who knows? You know what I mean? I don't want it to shatter and explode glass all over you. And then you say, man, Dave Arnold didn't really pay to use it. Anyway, that's not the, yeah, Okay, oh, so we have a caller. Hello, oh, caller. Hi. How are you doing? Hi, I'm fine. How are you? Doing well. Okay, I have a question. It's about chicken, because okay. I cook chicken thighs all the time, and it seems like no matter how I cook them, they come out wonderfully, and everyone thinks they're great. But whenever I cook chicken breasts or chicken cutlets or even a whole chicken, it just seems like the chicken breasts are never that tasty, and they're often dry, and especially the next day. Like, the next day, you can heat up a stew with chicken thighs, and it's really good and even better. But whenever I try to heat up chicken breasts the next day, they're even drier. So I just wondered if you have any tips. Well, first of all, you are correct. Uh, chicken thighs are inherently superior to chicken breasts. And I do not know what kind of marketing nonsense has convinced the majority of Americans that somehow white meat chicken is superior to dark meat chicken. 
It's insane. It's insanity. The, the thigh is inherently has more taste, has, possibly it's more fat and connective tissue. It's going to stay more moist and has a higher tolerance to uh, overcooking than the breast meat does. I mean, that's just straight up fact. Okay. Uh, and a, a breast meat in like a typical American chicken doesn't have as much flavor as you'd like. But, you know, here, is, here are some things. I mean, do you brine the breast? No, but that's a, that's a good thought. Yeah, here's, here's the thing. So when you brine the breast, two things are happening. Or, or I brine both. But if you brine the breast with uh, – I usually uh, make a, some, uh, like a – even you could just do water solution until it's uh, salty, tasty like salty, almost like ocean salty. And then you add sugar until it just gets sweet. And what you're doing is, is by adding that salt, you are changing uh, the amount of water that the muscle can uh, hold on to, right? So it seems counterintuitive because when you add salt, usually you're drawing moisture right. out. But right. when, when the salt gets into the meat, it's actually changing the amount of moisture that the meat can hold on to when it cooks. And it gives you a couple, couple extra degrees of temperature before the meat dries out. And it will also appear moisture when it's, when it's cooled down. Um, the, the other, you know, obviously, you want to be careful not to – overcook the breast if you cook the breast separately from the thigh it's easier um but um that that the main thing is the brining also the brining is going to increase the salt level on the inside of the meat which is going to increase the flavor of that meat make it a little less inherently flavorless you know uh, um, okay. so you win two times with that uh you, you know if you have an immersion circulator that is a spot-on way to to you know the piece of equipment we were just talking about it's a spot-on way to cook it because then you can cook a chicken breast to like 63, 64 Celsius, and when it cools down, it's super juicy and the texture is just right. But I personally, I think it's hard to, you know, using traditional cooking techniques to achieve a, uh, a good uh, uh, chicken breast that's good as a cold preparation the next day. Uh, you know, that's why we tend to chop it up and toss it with mayonnaise. Do you know what okay. I mean? Yeah, um, that makes sense. That's what I always do. Yeah, I mean, that's delicious too. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, I love chicken salad. I mean, I mean you know, we grew up on that stuff. I love chicken salad. But um, so I don't know you whether I've been helpful. With, you probably make it with homemade mayonnaise, right? Uh, you know, I wish I could say that's true. But, I, like, but there's certain things that you grow up with in life and you just tend to like them. And one of them is I like store-bought mayonnaise. I hate to say it. I just really uh, do too, actually. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's just... Well, what about uh, poaching chicken breasts? I mean, that's sort of something we all grew up with, too. Right, well, uh, poaching chicken breasts, you know, there's a, there's a couple of... I, I used to do it quite a lot. I've, you know, Jacques Pepin came out with a cookbook in the 80s, and he has a chicken salad uh, recipe, poached chicken recipe, that he attributes to Danny Kaye, the famous uh, actor who was also, I believe, mm-hmm. a conductor and, and a fine, fine cook. Uh, and um, he used a technique where he would put it into uh, water, although I would use broth, right? And then you can uh, raise you, you raise the temperature until it just comes to the boil, and then you cover it, and then you let the, the, the heat ride out. Now, it's no way an accurate cooking technique, but it's a variation on a cooking technique that has been used for millennia. For instance, hams used to be cooked that way in a five-gallon... Uh, uh, lard container. Uh, you would, you know, you would heat the water up in the lard, put the ham in, close it, and then wrap it up, and let the carryover heat. And the theory is, is that the carryover heat's going to be enough to cook it, but the temperature is going to drop enough that it's not going to horribly overcook the meat by the time it's done. So I used to fill up a. Uh, you know, like a pot of water and put, you know, a, a pot with uh, some, you know, vegetables and, uh, and you know, if you had some broth or stock, you could put it in. And then chicken breast, I would also use thighs, bring it up to the, just to the simmer, close it and let it ride out. And you get two things. You get a nice broth and you get some nice chicken meat that's good for a cold salad because it was not overcooked but cooked in water so it didn't lose – or cooked in moisture so it didn't lose a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of um, you know – a lot of it's it's not dry. So uh, and that's uh, you know attributable to Danny Kay through Jacques Pepin, if that's helpful. Well, that's really helpful. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for listening. Okay, take care. Right, bye. Did you take a break, Dave? Oh, uh, and I'm told that we are coming on to our first commercial break. This is Cooking Issues doc, uh, Cooking Issues Radio on Heritage Radio Network seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. That's seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight.
Welcome back to Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network, where we answer your cooking questions at 718-497-2128. 718-497-2128. Uh, okay, so Michael Griffiths uh, from Philadelphia is a follower of the blog. Thank you so much. And uh, he called in because he has having a problem with uh, some seafood sausages he's making because they added ginger to them, and he says they, they didn't come out the same. And he's pretty sure that the ginger reacted, uh, he thinks, with the eggs and messed it up. He said because he also has put uh, um, ginger into consomme, and he couldn't get the raft. When you're when you're clarifying uh, when you're clarifying things, you add you know, traditionally you add an egg white raft, and the protein along with whatever ground up lean meat you put in helps hold on to the, uh, the ter- what makes it turbid the turbidity, and uh, helps clarify the stock over time. It's the actual the proteins are charged, and they actually hold on to um, they hold on to the stuff that's making it cloudy. And he's saying he thinks it's the ginger that's uh, messing it up. And what the hell is going on? <clears throat> now, uh, I don't actually know that it's the egg white specifically that's uh, having a problem with the ginger. It might actually be the meat and the binding of the muscle proteins together because ginger, uh, w- you know, it's a well, well-known uh, enzyme in ginger is uh, – uh, there's a protease enzyme in it. And I believe the name of it, although I could be wrong, is – and I don't know how to pronounce anything – is zingibane. Zingibane. And that's a, 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 you know, a protease enzyme. It's going to break things down. And it's used as a meat tenderizer. And in fact, uh, you know, it's, it's you know, just as effective, if not more effective, than papain and you know, all these other commercial meat tenderizers. So ginger juice is a well-known uh, – has been a well-known uh, tenderizer, uh, I believe, since antiquity. So you know, it does contain protease enzymes, and that's going to mess up your raft and might also mess up your sausage. You could cook the ginger, but then uh, beforehand that would um, – that would you know wipe out the enzyme, uh, but might change the flavor of the ginger. But these things are being cooked anyway. So if you, I think if you pre-cook the ginger, you're not going to have a uh, a problem. An interesting recipe to look up uh, that has to do with uh, ginger and proteins is uh, a Chinese uh, dessert called uh, a ginger milk curd, where they basically they take uh, a milk and they add ginger, and it causes it to curdle and set. Um, so this is a uh, this is a well-known and interesting fact. Thanks for you know. Uh, calling our attention to it. And another interesting thing I looked at, I was looking at the technical literature on, on uh, ginger enzymes. And uh, ginger enzymes, uh, you know, zingibane or whatever it's called, is uh, very effective specifically at collagen, at breaking down connective tissue, uh, as opposed to it, it seems to have a higher affinity for that uh, than uh, other protease meat tenderizing enzymes do. So uh, thank again, thank you for that question. And he also uh, had a question about lobsters because uh, he heard that uh, lobsters that are in the tank start to feed off their own flesh, uh, which, you know, is true because they typically don't feed lobsters in tanks because if you feed a lobster in a tank, uh, it, it's going to raise the, uh, you know, the waste products that are in the tank and any feed that's not used up is going to, uh, you know, ca- cause problems. So they tend not to feed, I guess also it might cause aggression problems, but I don't remember. It's been a long time since I've read that kind of technical literature on lobsters. Uh, but that is true, but they can survive a very, very, very long time. So I don't know how, I don't know how much uh, flesh degradation there is just from being stored on a tank, although it's something I've heard quite a bit. The next time I speak to a lobster uh, scientist, I will definitely ask them that, that question. Um, the second thing is, what is the enzyme that breaks down lobster meat after you kill them, uh, and uh, how long till the enzyme starts to work, etc., etc.? Can you prevent that enzyme from working uh, by freezing it? Uh, now listen, 
this is an incredibly complicated question because there's very, very, very many enzymes on the inside of uh, a lobster. Uh, lobster tends to have a, a breakdown of its tissue relatively quickly because the circulatory system and basically all the guts of the lobster, everything's in close proximity and kind of an open system. So once the animal is dead, those enzymes really start to, to work quickly. There's a number of enzymes. It's not just one enzyme that goes to work in lobsters. There's enzymes in it that, that uh, break down um, that break down ATP and other uh, nucleotides, and they eventually become products that uh, that affect flavor. In fact, um, you know, uh, IMP, inosine uh, monophosphate, is re- is reduced to or you know uh, changed to other things that have a negative impact on quality, and that is easily traced and is used as an indicator of quality because uh, as that starts to progress, other things like proteolytic enzymes have also been working, uh, breaking down the, um, the the meat. So. And it's it's you know very well known that uh, I forget what the thing is called the organ on the inside of the lobster it's something like hepatopancreas or something like that contains a, a variety of protease uh, enzymes that are just going to wreak havoc with the meat. Now here's the bad news: you cannot stop those enzymes by freezing because uh, as you thaw the meat out, like freezing it, they 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 will work somewhat as they're frozen because unless it, there's something called the eutectic point where when you freeze a, a, a something below the point at which there's no water left at all, then yes. Enzymatic activity stops, but in fact, what happens is is that at normal freezer temperatures, there's still a good bit of unfrozen water uh, left inside of your tissue, and enzymes can continue to work in that situation. But real hell breaks loose when you thaw it, because then you have a lot of water that becomes available to these enzymes that are in a hyper-concentrated state uh, in the remaining uh, tissue of the animal, and they just go to town. And so you uh, end up having huge uh, degradation on, uh, on thawing, uh, especially if things are, apparently, if things are rapidly thawed. Um, so uh, I hope this... Uh, answers your question. Um, I plan on doing a lot more work with uh, lobsters soon. I've been for literally for a year and a half. I've been supposed to be pitching something to the New York Times on uh, on lobsters and and what we what we do with them. Uh, so look for more in the somewhat near future. Although I don't know, Nastasha, how near future do you think? Uh, realistically, what are three, we talking? Three years out. Oh, Jesus! Come on now, <laughs> that's not right. Okay, anyway. Uh, <clears throat> oh, another interesting thing. Not only are the enzymes working more, uh, but I found a study that says that um, the muscle fibers of lobster are something like four times uh, more liable to breaking by uh, proteolytic enzymes than, um, than like mammal tissue. The one they used was rabbit. They said that the lobster meat was broken down four times uh, easier than uh, rabbit meat. And I only saw one paper in passing this morning, but uh, anyway. And also – Cool thing. uh, There's a paper called Novel Uses of uh, Fish uh, and Marine Invertebrate Enzymes in Food Industry from 2000. And they have a cool thing that – and it's because of this question I looked it up. Uh, They have a cool technique where they use enzymes to descale fish so the scales can basically just be washed off and then the skin is perfect. You don't have any problem with with knife marks or scraping in the skin. And it's used because – People tan fish skins for leather, and those guys don't want any scraping on their skin, and so the enzymatic. But I wonder whether there's any application for food industry. What do you think? Fun? Maybe. Look it up. Yeah. Marine pepsin. Uh, The the one I found came from salmon. Anyway, so uh, thank you for that question. And now uh, our former favorite Thai intern, of course (laughs) our only Thai intern, we do love him, Weepop, Weepop Soupy Pot, asked about the uh, old cucumber trick of rubbing cucumber ends together to get the bitterness out. So for those of you that aren't aware, there's a, a there's an old kind of, uh, what do you want to call it? Like a, a kitchen, what do you want to call it? Old piece of kitchen wisdom? Yeah. Yeah, right. Because I, I hate that term, old wives' tale. Yeah, I know. I hate it. What does that mean? Nothing. First of all, is it old wives or old wives? Wives? Old wives, wives. With a V? Wives. Sure. Yes, I'm sure. Yeah, okay. Uh, anyway, so uh, old, if it was old wise tale, well, then it's it old wife's. What? That would be, that's crazy. Mm, no. Anyway, so um, anyway, there is a uh, an old uh, kitchen piece of kitchen wisdom, or maybe not wisdom, uh, that if you uh, take and cut the end of a cucumber off, and then the both ends of the cucumber, flip it and rub the other end with the other end, then all of a sudden the bitterness is going to go away. Now, for those of you out there that are like, hey, cucumbers aren't bitter. What the hell is he talking about, right? Now, listen, <clears throat> there are wild cucumbers are bitter. Pickling cucumbers can be bitter. Um, 
most supermarket cucumbers, in fact, are not bitter. And if they are bitter, it's the uh, it's the skin that's bitter. Right? So a very, very small percentage of, of uh, supermarket cucumbers are bitter. And certain people can't even taste the bitterness even in the cucumbers that are bitter. Um, what's making it bitter and is, uh, is a thing called cucurb... I can't, I can't... I will never be able to pronounce this. Cucurbitacin, B and C. And uh, the, the, these are present in all the cucumber plants, but usually not so much in the actual fruit. Uh, and if they are in the fruit, they, they predominate at the stem end. So if you cut the stem end off and then peel it, you're going to get rid of most of the bitter. But I have not found any sort of evidence for rubbing it, getting rid of that bitterness, and it doesn't make any sense. If you're cutting the ends off of the cucumber, well, then, hell, you're getting rid of the most bitter part of the cucumber, especially if you peel it. So that's going to help right there. The rubbing looks like it's doing something because it foams up and forms a slime but if you think about it uh, and I'm willing to be proven wrong on this how the heck is you going to pull bitterness out of a whole cucumber just by rubbing the end I mean I could stick a uh, the end of a cucumber in a, in a pot of stink for like you know half an hour and then cut the stink off and the rest of the cucumber is still fine so how are you going to draw the bitterness out just by rubbing the end true or false Stasi? true true she looks up upset now she's never going to eat a cucumber again uh, so anyway so if you have a bitter cucumber the, the bad news is is that even on the same plant some cucumbers will be bitter and some won't uh, and, and you know, no one's exactly sure it's like the stress of growing like how old they are but your best bet is to cut off the ends and peel it and then wash it to get rid of the bitterness and you're going to be okay oh we have a caller Hello, caller. Hey, hello. How are you? Doing well. Uh, I had a question. Uh, I've been making a drink for a few, a few, a few years now. It's uh, espresso in uh, Coca-Cola and uh, just uh, put it over ice. Uh, I played around with it a lot, bunch. but the main thing is uh, the way I do it is I take ice, uh, just a of espresso over the ice, and I put uh, Coca-Cola back over the It doesn't matter. Uh, what happens is uh, Coca-Cola foam uh, stiffens up a lot. Uh, I want to know if you know... Uh, why that, why that would be? All right, Jose, I'm having I'm having a lot of trouble hearing you because your uh, your cell phone your cell phone's breaking up on me. I heard oh, what I was able to hear that. was espresso beverage and foam. But the, what what do you say? Do you put cocoa in it? Right, I make a uh, beverage with uh, espresso and Coca Cola. Oh, Coca Cola and espresso. Okay. And the problem with the foam is what? Foam thickens up a lot. I want to know if you know why that would be. Yeah. So. Uh, uh, if you've ever carbonated coffee before, it's a nightmare uh, in terms of foaming. It really foams up a lot, like a lot, lot. Um, and I've never done the research on why, but there's a, you know, you know, coffee has a lot of, uh, espresso specifically has a lot of body to it and a lot of uh, emulsified oils in it. And it has a high uh, total dissolved solids content. And it's known for holding a head, like a good espresso, right, has a crema on it. So when you dump an espresso into a Coca-Cola and then try to uh, uncap it, you're going to get like a serious head formation. I've had, uh, I, you know, <clears throat> when I carbonate uh, coffee beverages, I usually carbonate with uh, nitrous. It's not carbonating, but I carbonate with nitrous uh, to add the creaminess back to the, uh, to the coffee beverage, like when I'm doing cold, like espresso-based cocktails, and they foam like the dickens. You just can't. You can't get around it. Uh, I should have done more research. I think it's delicious, honestly. It's my favorite part of the drink. Yeah, it, but it's a, it's a, it, if you're pouring it in, but when you're doing it in a bottle under pressure, it's, a, it's, a, it's hard to not have it spray all over the kitchen. It is delicious. I mean, you should try, you know, if you like that, if you, do you have an, uh, one of those ISI cream whippers where you are? Uh, I don't have one. Uh, no, I've used them in the past in a lot of restaurants I've worked in. I'm planning on getting one for the restaurant uh, I'm starting with now. Yeah, so just you know, just for, for giggles, when you're not doing a Coca-Cola one, when you're doing a, a regular one, just try hitting a cold espresso beverage with a shot of nitrous, and you get a lot of that body and creaminess back that you get from a fresh shot, even more so, uh, but it doesn't have the, the carbonation taste. So the carbonation taste, like there's a Manhattan soda, it's called Manhattan soda, I think, that's really good, that is a carbonated coffee drink, uh, but a lot of people, if they don't, they want that creaminess without the, uh, and that foaminess without the uh, carbonation, you could try nitrous, and that, I've had good success with yeah, that. All right. Great. All right, thank you. Thanks for calling in. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Let me see here. We got some more questions on the email. Uh, okay, so Anthony Wong, who took our sous vide class, uh, wrote in and said, uh, I mentioned that I use stainless steel pins for cooking a duck breast instead of scoring the skin. Now, a word of, he wants to know where he can get it and what kind. Uh, a word of uh, background here. When you're cooking a duck breast, you want to cut. Most people will tell you you want to score the duck breast 
you know, the skin side of it, so that when you render out the skin, when you when you crisp up the skin, the fat's going to render out. Now, Nils Norin, uh, you know, you know my my bar- buddy, partner in crime, head of the French culinary culinary department. Uh, detest this practice because he says that where the scoring is, you're going to overcook the meat. Uh, but people who say who are pro scoring say, well, they want more fat rendered out. So where where you know where do you come down on this? Well, Chris Young, uh, chef formerly the research chef at the Fat Duck Restaurant in um, in uh, in in England, and uh, Nathan Mirvold, the uh, Microsoft billionaire inventor of PowerPoint and many other things. Um, you know, are coming out with uh, you know supposedly the, the, well not supposedly I've seen it. it's really good you know the greatest tech cookbook ever written it's a huge magnum opus it's coming out at the end of the year um, they demonstrated a technique last year at Star Chefs where they said well <clears throat> what if you took a dog brush and uh, you know like you go it's like a steel dog brush you just go to a pet store make sure you get one that's stainless steel and it's got zillions of little tiny stainless steel spines on it. And you just smack the duck breast with this uh, dog brush a couple times, and it makes uh, all these micro perforations in the skin, and they allow the fat to render out of the duck breast without uh, without giving you enough area to overcook the meat that's underneath. And you know what? We've tested it several times, and it's a fantastic idea. So I think anyone that cooks duck breast on a regular you know regular basis needs to go buy. A dog brush. Uh, please don't use the brush you've already used on your dog. That's gross. Go get a brand new dog brush. I think they're like three dollars or four dollars. You can get them at any pet food store, uh, pet store, or you know, pet supply mart, right? And uh, they do, they do, uh, they do wonders. So uh, break, time. Uh, break time. All right. I've been told we're going to our next commercial break. So call your questions into seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. That's seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. Cooking issues. If you want to get down with a bird. back to Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network. Calling your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. And we have a caller. Hello, caller. You're on the air. Hi. Hi, Dave. How are you? Hey. Um, I had a question about steak. Oh, good. I like steak. Uh, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a big fan of steak, especially uh, ribeyes and grass-fed ribeyes. Nice. Uh, but sometimes uh, when I've cooked the steak, there sometimes there's this really hard or a tendon that runs through it, and I'm not sure what the reason for that is or, or what, to, what to do with those. Uh, I mean, the, the silver skin or the actual piece of connective tissue that is uh, that little, I mean, that, that one little section on the upper part of the muscle that's, some, that's in one part of it but not the other, there's not, there's not a lot you can do about that. As far as I know, you, you have to kind of cut it out. I tend to trim it. I mean, one thing you can do, you can see it before you, before you cook it, right? Um, and you can trim that out. And then uh, and then re glue it back together with uh, transglutaminase. 
I can't remember what that's made out of. I mean, I, I don't think that's going to render even under long cook. I could be wrong. I don't remember whether that does, but of course you're never going to cook that kind of meat long enough to render it. So I don't think short of removing it and gluing it back together, which I have done many times, I don't know of a, of a good way to get that done. Do you have access to meat glue? Uh, no, I don't, but I do, I do have a circulator. Okay. Yeah, you know what the problem is this. So let's – okay, so for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, uh, you know, in uh, certain cuts of steak, like, in, like along, as you go along the, uh, the, you know, the, the rib steak, you'll see that there's certain ones that have these little, like, dots in, the, in, the, in between the two muscle parts that are – you know, that don't – they can stay hard basically. Uh, now, the, the, there's a, an enzyme called transglutaminase, Activa transglutaminase, that will glue proteins together, and it's very simple to use. Uh, the problem is you have to buy a whole bag of it, and I have a question on that. I actually came in on an email and an answer in a minute. Um, but they can rebond the meat together, and I use it for taking out pieces of connective tissue and then gluing meat back together. Um, and that's viable, but you know you have to have that stuff lying around. Uh, the problem with circulators with that is, is that to to render a piece, if it was connective tissue, which is going to get soft with long cooking, and I don't know that that's the case. Uh, at the temperatures you're going to want to cook a ribeye, which is roughly 55 degrees Celsius, um, it would take uh, several days to really break it down. And um, you know, in the tests that we've done with with ribeyes, you don't want to cook them more than about um, you know you know six hours. We've done one hours, two hours, three hours, four hours, five hours, six hours, seven hours, eight hours, nine hours, ten hours, and overnight on ribeyes. And uh, <clears throat> we like them uh, best in the ribeyes. That is in the two to four hour range, and we like them okay. You know, up to about six. At eight, we feel that they're you know starting to take on kind of a little bit of a squashy texture, and that it, it gets fibery as you chew. And that long, long cooking on ribeye is not going to be necessarily uh, so good for it. So I don't know that you have a long cooking way of uh, getting out of it. Hey, you know you could do if you don't have meat glue though. You could still cut out that 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 portion that you don't like, and uh, and then basically almost. You I don't know if this is going to work. You could try dusting it. I don't think gelatin is going to hold it together at the high temperature. I'm trying to think of something you can use other than. Um, other than meat glue, because all you really want to have to do is bind it together. Do you have a vacuum uh, sealer as well? Yeah, I do. I mean, you could try sprinkling a little bit of uh, of uh, like salt and then some sort of uh, gelatin. It's going to melt when you do it, but it, if you vacuum it together, it's going to hold together while you cook it, and it'll probably hold together while you sear it. But then, as you cut it on the plate, obviously you're going to see that you've trimmed out a piece of the of the muscle. You know. Right. Sorry, I couldn't okay. be more helpful on this one. No, it just sounds, sounds like I have to get some uh, transglutamate. <laughs> yeah, you, def- you definitely do. You definitely do. Uh, well, uh, thanks for calling in. That leads great into our next question from Matt, who says um, he's been reading up on transglutaminase after seeing the uh, Iron Chef uh, episode where my brother-in-law, Wiley Dufresne, used it to make, uh, unfortunately, not shrimp noodles, tilapia noodles. Tilapia is, you know... Not our favorite fish. Anyway, uh, he said that he really wants to start using it, but he has a couple questions. Do you know of a supplier who sells quantities smaller than the $90 bags online, which are one kilo, uh, either an online supplier or a brick-and-mortar store in Boston or New York? Uh, And the short answer is no, I do not. It used to be that – and it might still be for all I know that if you call up um, Ajinomoto, the company that makes it, it's Ajinomoto makes – uh, transglutaminase enzyme, which is meat glue, the stuff that glues proteins together. You sprinkle it on like powdered sugar and the meat she sticks together. It's great stuff. They make it, uh, Ajinomoto under Aji Foods USA makes it, and the brand name they use is Activa. And the one that you want to get to start with is Activa RM. Uh, they used to give out like small 200 gram, I think, uh, sample packs to chefs. But the, the chef community has taken to it so much, they might no longer give out sample packs. And unfortunately, Ajinomoto does not sell increments smaller than one kilo. And because they come packed direct from Ajinomoto in one kilo packs and not in like 50-pound sacks the way that, um, the way that like, you know, most powders and hydrocolloids come, companies haven't been willing to break them down into smaller packs. And Ajinomoto hasn't been willing to make available – for, to pay for their sample packs. Now, if Ajinomoto just said, hey, look, we're going to quadruple the amount of sample packs we're going to make and then just charge three times as much per pound, people would still buy it because people would rather, to test, spend 15 bucks on 200 grams or 20 bucks on 200 grams uh, 
than, um, than shelling out for a whole kilo if they don't know if they're going to use it over time, especially because you know, they figure they're not going to use it before it goes bad. Uh, now, uh, we have toyed with the idea, cooking issues, of making that enzyme available the same way we make uh, Pectinex Ultra SPL and Pectinex Smash, uh, you know, the, the miracle pectin uh, breaking down enzymes that make the world's greatest French fry and the world's greatest juices. Um, but... Uh, the, but we decided against it because we didn't know that we wanted to get in the business of cutting open that, uh, you know, retail pack and then repacking it and selling it. Um, maybe we should. I don't know. It's something, I think we should. Yeah, but, I mean, yeah. I have to figure out whether or not uh, whether or not it's a problem to do it, or whether or not you know we're going to run into any issues with it. Um, but you know, it would be useful to people. So I apologize that there is no way. But here's what here's what you should do: you should get together with some buddies. You should uh, split a package of it, and then when you buy it, make sure that you cut it open. You instantly get all the air out and store it in the freezer, and it will last a good long time in the freezer, like six, six, eight months in the freezer, uh, and you'll get good good use out of it. So, I mean, it's it's definitely worth getting if you can split the bag with like you know four or five people, even more so. Um, but anyway, I'm sorry I couldn't be more help with that. But then the second part of the question is: Can meat glue be used with non-meat proteins? And uh, can you do something interesting with nuts, for example? Well, I've never done anything with nuts, but it does make tofu firmer. And uh, you know, you can make, for instance, peanut tofu. But peanut tofu is very, very soft, and it's very hard to get to, to hold together. So perhaps you could use, and this is perhaps because I've never done it. Perhaps you could use transglutaminase to help cross-link proteins in, like, a peanut curd, for example, and then make. Uh, a more effective peanut tofu. Peanut tofu is a real pain in the butt. It really clogs things up. It's hard to get it to set up nicely. It's delicious when you get it right, though, so that's possible. Um, so, yeah, transglutaminase works on uh, any any protein like that. Uh, works Like I said, I haven't tried nuts, but it works on cheese. You can glue things to cheese. works on egg yolk. It thickens up egg yolk quite nicely, and you can uh, glue things to egg yolks. We glue bacon to egg yolks, which is meat, but you could glue cheese to an egg yolk, I guess. Um... You know, any protein like that. I mean, the problem with slurries, if there's not enough protein and there's too much fat, like in a nut paste, then the protein doesn't have anything to bind onto and it makes for very kind of weak bonds. And so in certain situations, it tends to act more as a thickener than as a, uh, than as a, a you know, a, a gluing agent. They also have one for dairy uh, that's used for yogurt to make a yogurt set up better, but is uh, used by, you know, you know, like Johnny Azzini to make ricotta dumplings uh, or gnocchi rather. So yes, it will bond any, any one, or it will, it will be active on any one of those, um, on any one of those proteins. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things yet to be done with it. Wiley, my brother-in-law, Wiley Dufresne, he has a very, very interesting application. Unfortunately, it's meat because it uses gelatin, but basically he uses uh, transglutaminase to cross-link gelatin so that it doesn't melt anymore, and he makes sheets out of uh, vegetables like pasta and then lets it set overnight with the transglutaminase, and it, uh, once the gelatin sets up and cross-links, it no longer melts but stays flexible like a noodle, and these things can be fried into crisps or used as pasta. It's a fantastic technique. You can look for it on the internet. That one, you want to use the um, Activa. That, there's a special one called TI that's just the enzyme. It doesn't have uh, – the, the, most of the ones we use have casein or added gelatin in it. You want to make sure you use the one that's just straight enzyme for that technique. But uh, hopefully that's helpful, and I wish you luck in your, in your transglutaminase journeys. Uh, <clears throat> I have another question from Ray in uh, D.C., Hi, Ray. Uh, and uh, he likes our show, which is nice. Thank you. Uh, and uh, a friend of his went to a place called PX in Alexandria, uh, Alexandria Virginia, uh, and, uh, and he said they had a, a drink that was made with tobacco, uh, tobacco in the drink, tobacco infused, and he thinks it's made with bourbon. Uh, well, that place, PX, is uh, the, the guy there is a guy named Todd Thrasher, and for a number of years now, I think three or four, he's been well known for uh, infusing um, cocktail, uh, cocktails with tobacco. Um, and I forget, I, I saw him interviewed on it once and it was, uh, something about like his ch- childhood memories. I think he grew up maybe near a tobacco farm. Anyway, like, it has a lot of childhood memories for him, the smell of tobacco. I believe he does not infuse the tobacco into the bourbon. He infuses it into, I believe, water and then adds the tobacco water as, sir- as a syrup to the bourbon. That's, I think, how he does it. Uh, but I'm not sure because uh, I don't think he publishes his recipe. Now, <clears throat> the second part of that question was what do you think about the health effects of that? Well, it's definitely probably you know uh, ingesting it that way is definitely you know less harmful than um, than smoking it uh, because you know a lot of the harmful products in tobacco come from combustion of tobacco. But uh, it's not risk free. 
obviously, you know, I don't know what the long-term effects of, in, of ingestion are, uh, you know, but nicotine by itself has, you know, effects on your, um, on your cardiovascular system. Uh, you know, if you ingested huge amounts of it, for any of you who have ever tried uh, dipping tobacco, you know, uh, like, you know, the stuff dip that you put in your lip and have accidentally swallowed the juices, you know that concentrated tobacco juices, uh, you know, make you throw up like a demon. At least they make me throw up like a demon. Apparently, if you dip all day every day, you can start swallowing the juices without spitting and not vomit. But the one time I was in my buddy Charlie's uh, room when I was in high school and he gave me some dip and then he said, why aren't you spitting? And I said, you need to spit in 30 seconds. Seconds later, his entire room was coated with my lunch. Like, uh, you know, from that on in, I was like, large concentrations of tobacco juice don't sit well, literally, in your stomach. And so, uh, you know, I doubt he's putting enough tobacco in to have that kind of effect, which means he's probably putting a very small amount in, which means any health effect is probably small, uh, you know, especially because how many are you drinking? I don't know. Um, what do you think, Stasi? I yeah. don't like tobacco. No. All right. Wait. So I hope that. Hope that answers uh, your question. And Ray also says that he's been uh, infusing vodka using our infusion technique, and uh, we appreciate we appreciate. It. Uh, thank you for your question. Um, now, Curtis wrote in and he said regarding freezing and enzymes because uh, we were talking about that earlier. Then this is like live email, it's crazy. Uh, I have found that pork tenderloin is much more tender when frozen than thawed as compared with fresh. Well. Uh, I haven't done the test myself, but that's entirely possible. If you slow freeze a piece of meat, what happens is, is as you're freezing it, uh, water is drawn out of the tissue and forms ice crystals. The slower that it's frozen, the, the bigger the ice crystals are, and they can have a tendency to uh, not only puncture the uh, meat – uh, cells, so that when you thaw, you get lost. But also, those big ones are harder to reabsorb back into the meat tissue as it thaws. So when you're freezing something, it's, think of it as a partial dehydration. And when you're thawing it, the meat is reabsorbing that liquid. Now, the more something drips liquid when it's thawed, the more damage uh, you've done to the meat. Now, <clears throat> that damage, though, it's possible. I haven't studied it. But it's possible that that actually could make it more tender as long as you're not cooking it to the point where it's going to dry out again. So it's in entirely uh, – po- uh, and also it's entirely possible as you say in your question that the, uh, that the proteolytic enzymes uh, present in the meat uh, kick into overdrive as they're thawed. But I don't know that information off the top of my head. I'm going to have to do some uh, research. So Stasi, if you want to – Rejot this question down. Mm-hmm. I'll try and look for. Uh, I'll try and look for freeze thaw tenderizing in the scientific literature over the course of, of the week. Because it's an interesting question. I hadn't thought of it, but it, it's probably, you know, the effect, um, which again I haven't tested, is probably a multi, like a multifactorial thingamajig, mm-hmm. right? <clears throat> Anywho, all right. So we we were trying to call our good buddy Mark Ladner for this next question. Mark Ladner is a chef at Del Posto and a tall man. How tall is uh, Mark Ladner? Is he 6'4"? 6'10"? 6'10". Crazy. He's like 6'4", six, 6'5". Six, so he's tall. He's tall. Uh, anyway, uh, this this will make sense uh, in the next question. So um, Steve writes in and said uh, a friend whose name is uh, Colleen, right, mm-hmm. uh, is, a, is a tall woman. <clears throat> she is 6'7". Uh, it's tall. Yeah, just under six foot seven. Actually, six foot six. Short. <laughs> yeah, not even six foot seven. No. So she's six foot, basically six foot seven. She loves to cook, but she gets terrible back pains when working in the kitchen, uh, particularly when preparing food. And so they have a you know you know the standard countertops are thirty six inches high and is you know inadequate for her. Uh, they did some calculations and they figured that uh, the average countertop is built for someone who's five four to five five. I think it's based on kind of uh, you know like uh, the average World War II era housewife. Is that uh, and that so they constructed a butcher block that's thirteen inches, uh, thirteen and a half inches uh, high. You know, a table that fits on top of the countertop that she can do her, her cutting on. Um, but and she loves it. Mm-hmm. She loves, and you can look on the internets. There's pictures of her using it. and She enjoys it. Uh, but she's enrolling in a culinary school, and the question is, what can be done for a very tall cook? Does she have to bend over, or can she bring something like her modified butcher block uh, with her to school, or are there other approaches? Well, that's an interesting question. First of all, uh, I don't know that six five that six five six four is actually. I mean, I haven't. Re- I'm sure you've read the studies. I haven't. I'm five ten. And I like countertop heights a lot. Um, 
when they're even like a couple inches taller, like let's say like they were five inches taller for me, I get fatigued because of the way that I'm used to, to cooking. So a lot of how you – a lot of, uh, of what's happening with your, with your back and working at a countertop has to do with how you position yourself at the counter, like what your stance is and where your, where your wrist and your arm is. So I, I'm used to working at 36. So when you go lower or you go higher, like I get, to, I get totally messed up, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now – <clears throat> but that's because I'm used to that. Now, I stood on a stool that made me as tall as Colleen, right? And indeed, my arms, I could not get a comfortable stance no matter how I tried. Now, of course, I'm sure Colleen's arms are longer than mine. You know what I mean? I mean, you know, you know so I don't know whether it's 100% you know, accurate, but I can see the definite need for someone that height to increase the, the, the height of their countertop. Now, Here's the problem. If you're going to a cooking school, I think what, what you're going to do depends entirely on why you're going to cooking school and what kind of cooking school you're going to. If you um, – I was, had this discussion. My wife's an architect and I was having this discussion with her last night after this question came in. Well, for instance, would a workplace be required to uh, allow you to bring something in um, because of your height? Could, could you, for instance, go in – Obviously, I'm not saying being tall is a disability. You know, I wish I was tall. You know what I mean? But like, in other words, we have in the U.S. we have the American with Disabilities Act, and you 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 have to make the workplace, with the exception of a couple jobs like airline, you know, a flight attendant, and whatnot, safety jobs like that. You have to make the workplace accessible to anyone based on something that's classified as a disability. But I don't know that I don't know that you would classify being. Um, too tall for the countertops as something that a workplace would necessarily have to make compensation for. But I don't know. It's a very interesting question. Um, now, if you're going to cooking school and you're not interested in working in a pro kitchen, you know, for for years and years, then by all means, I would say, you know, ask them. Let 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 you bring it in and use it. You know, there's no reason to break your back. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, if you're going to be working in professional kitchens for you know a long long time you know i would i would recommend at least trying to figure out some way to modify your 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 stance or modify something or maybe use like a weightlifting belt or something that can help support your back i don't know whether that's helpful because my you know i was talking to my wife again architect and designer and she's like there's two choices modify your environment or modify yourself and the and the and what this boils down to is I don't know if you're going to be able to modify your environment if you're going to go out into the professional cooking environment. And if you can't modify your environment, then the only thing left is modify yourself. And that could be with supports for your back or, or uh, you know, Alton Brown is apparently very tall and he designed these knives that have like a, 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 a bend in the handle so that he doesn't have to bring his wrist all the way down to do the chopping. Now, for me, they're goofy because, <laughs> you know, I'm short. You know, I'm 5'10", and so regular knives work great. But, you know, I don't know whether she's tried uh, these knives with the bend in the handle that are designed specifically for tall people and to make up for the um, the difference in height and countertops. So it's an interesting question. I don't have a uh, resolution. Um, what do you think, Sazi? I, I think – I don't know. I Well, but the, I told you about the other part where we knew the guy who was really tiny. Well, if you're problem, sh- and he still works in a, kit, a professional kitchen. That's easier to modify, I think. Though. Oh, a stool. Yeah, or or something. But you know, again, it's a very interesting question, and uh, I wish you know I'm going to get in touch with some uh, some cooks who are very very tall, and some cooks who are not so tall, and uh, you know you know very untall, and we will <laughs> and we'll try to figure out what the uh, what the answer is because I think it's I think it's super interesting. But uh, the long story short, if you're not going to go pro into a professional kitchen, and by the way. I, I never think any professional kitchen should discriminate against anyone for any reason, obviously. But I'm just saying, like, what can you realis- realistically expect to happen when you go to a kitchen? That's the real question. It's not what they should do. We all know what my stepfather said. Should you know? I can't get into it because it involves curse. But like, it's not what they should do. It's what they will do. Is what you need to worry about. Um, but if you're not in it to go pro, um, you know, I think a, a long talk with a cooking school. 
Uh, I'm sure they would like to have her money. Uh, so oh, I'm sure they will make some accommodation. Am I wrong about this? I mean, I don't see it as being that disruptive to the no. uh, class. Uh, and then she has her own station and everything. She yeah, I mean, that. it's not like you know she's saying, "Hey, I need to listen to loud music while I cook, or I can't <laughs> learn," you know, which would be disruptive to the rest of the class. So you know, I don't see why they wouldn't. But uh, anyway, hopefully this is helpful, and you've uh, raised definitely an interesting question that I will be thinking more about. I love ergonomics uh, and design, so uh, I'll think more about this problem. And thank you all for listening to. Cooking Issues, this year, uh, this week's Cooking Issues brought to you by Whole Foods Market and the uh, Craft Beer Week. Cooking Issues. Thanks so much. Fishes, fishes, vodka. Oh, you dirty rat. 